our passage today. Now, I realize it is Psalm 23, which you might say, well, I have that memorized. Um, but I would encourage you to open your Bibles and to read it from your Bibles, because at least in the translation that we have, it might be a little differently. Uh, the other thing is, if, um, if there's anyone here that doesn't have a Bible that would like one, we have Bibles in the back. Uh, just raise your hand, and we'll make sure that we get one to you. Anyone? Alex, there's a, few, there's a couple of people here that would like a Bible. Okay. Um, and uh, and if, if you need a Bible and you want to take it home with you, please feel free to do that. If, uh, um, if you have one and you just want to borrow it, that's fine too, okay? Please feel free to use that as you can. So glad to, to have everyone. And uh, I, I want to say right now, um, since everyone is a little bit more settled, um, I just want to thank everyone for last week. Last week, the picnic and the, the Sunday was just really a great time, don't you think? I mean, it really was. And, and many of you may not realize, and I'm going to brag on my wife, she's not here, but um, she was kind of in charge of the picnic thing, and there was like this really big problem that came up. And while we were in here studying the Word and enjoying one another, there was a team out there frantically, number one, trying to find the taco truck, all right? and had to get the taco truck, and then they wouldn't allow them to go into the park, and that's a whole other thing. And so they came up with a plan, implemented the plan, and we ate, and the food was fabulous. And I just, for those that helped, uh, I just want to say thank you to you, um, and you know who you are. I uh, just want to thank you for being uh, just great supports. And then everyone just participated. Um, God has been good. And for those who are visiting, our church is just two years old, and uh, we, uh, we are just so thankful for his blessing and his goodness to us. And we were able to celebrate that last week, and so um, we're just glad that you can be a part of us here today, okay? Um, Deborah is going to come, and let's stand together and we'll read Psalm 23, Psalm 23, um, and then we'll jump into the, the study of God's Word, okay? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lord, would you allow us today to be humble, to be teachable, Lord, to kind of nestle ourselves in this most beautiful text of Scripture. Um, Lord, would you allow me to be your mouthpiece and simply reflect your truth? And Lord, would you allow us be, uh, Lord, eager recipients of the food that you are offering this morning? And uh, Lord, strengthen us, help us, encourage us. Lord, move us in the direction you want us to go. We ask now, Lord, for your, in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, a little kind of a preface for um, what we are doing this morning. There's a reason why we're in Psalm 23, um, and we are... Uh, last week we began this kind of short series um, really on church leadership because ultimately we want to get to the place where we're going to be establishing um, what are called elders in the church. And as a, as a young church, we didn't want to just kind of throw up leaders. We wanted to make sure that those leaders live their lives among the body. Uh, and they have done that for like about 20 months or so as prospective elders. Our church family knows who they are and uh, have sat under their ministry, have rubbed shoulders with them, doing work together, 
And at the same time, now we want to be teaching to actually move into the, the formality of that. And, and that is a really, really important aspect of, of a church, is to move properly and carefully into biblical eldership. And so we're taking our time to study what that means. Last week, we looked at the church kind of in one, uh, in one session, just looking at the beauty of God's church. And it is an incredibly beautiful creation of God. We defined it, we described it, it's described in so many different ways. And um, today, we're focusing on um, Psalm 23 because it talks about um, the, the shepherd of the sheep. And so uh, what we're trying to do then today is we're trying to, to seek answers to the questions. And here's some of the questions we're seeking to answer. What does it mean to be an elder in God's church? What are the qualifications and responsibilities? How are they carried out uh, uh, how, you know, as far as an elder, how do they carry out those responsibilities? How do they relate to and function with the rest of the flock? I should say that's what we're going to be studying over the course of this series, but um, those questions are incredibly important, and we need to understand them in a greater context, and so we, we want to come to Psalm 23 with an understanding that this declares for us a wonderful picture of that great shepherd. The best example of a shepherd is God himself, and then as we move to the New Testament, it is Jesus Christ who's talked about being the chief shepherd. In fact, I would invite you to turn to um, another passage, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. This is actually kind of our theme text for this series, and I just want to focus in here on these three groups. We're going to read it, but as I read it, notice the different groups that are talked about. Paul, uh, Peter says, so I exhort the elders among you, that's the first group, as fellow elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So there are elders and there's a flock that needs to be shepherded. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, that's Christ, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And so what we established last time was that there were these, these three groups. There were the elders, there, were, uh, there was this flock that needed to be shepherded, and there was the chief shepherd to whom we will all be accountable. And so with that in mind, it's important that we, uh, that we think through then uh, what shepherding actually is. Um, as I mentioned before, we described the church last time, we defined it, and we saw that God's desire for the church was not what we thought maybe it would be. It's upholding God's truth. It's declaring the glory of God. Um, and uh, those are critically important. So today, we want to examine this chief shepherd. And as I said, he is the best example of shepherding available. And we come to a place like Psalm 23, and one of the problems is it's so familiar. <laughs> it's so familiar that we probably memorized it. It's so familiar that we probably memorized it to the point where we've actually lost what the whole psalm is about. Uh, maybe some nuances. Um, but it's probably unlikely that you've actually heard a message from Psalm 23 in the context of church. Where would you typically hear this? At a funeral. And so oftentimes, honestly, pastors say, I'm not going to preach on it in church. I want to save that sermon for a funeral, right? 
Do I preach in church what maybe I would use at a funeral? Because I have to come up with some new stuff. Well, the reality is today we want to actually take a time to look at Psalm 23 in its kind of setting and understand what it is really talking about. Now, uh, a couple of, I should say, one particular concern that I want to, I want to throw out here. Psalm 23 is not sentimental escapism. Let me try and walk us through that. Psalm 23 is not full of platitudes, wishful thinking, or pie-in-the-sky statements. Oftentimes, that is how it's used. And in the context of a funeral, that's how it's used. It's like, oh, you know, what are we going to do? We want to honor the person who's passed away. And, oh, the Psalm 23, and it's just such a wonderful psalm and kind of is helpful and encouraging and all that kind of stuff. In fact, most of the time when you see Psalm 23 in print and it's on a poster, here's what it looks like. Psalm 23 is in the middle of the poster, but the picture behind it is, is this tranquil, wonderful lake. And there are these wonderful green pastures all around it. And then off of those pastures are, are luscious trees that are just growing up to the beautiful blue sky. And there are mountains in the back with snow peaks. And, and there's a bird fluttering by. You know, it's that kind of a, a picture of ultimate joyful bliss. But what's missing are the dark valleys. What's missing are the enemies that are being talked about in this psalm. And friends, we can take a psalm like this and we can, we can allow it to be some kind of a sentimental psalm and, and just kind of get our good feelings out of it when that's really not what it's all about. Now, certainly it is a psalm that brings focus and hope and comfort in time of need. But let's allow us to, to take time to see what it is saying. It is, it is not a picture of utopian reality. Life is not about living in perfect peace. I could tell all of you, live in perfect peace. Then you'll get on the roads, and you'll start driving, and your perfect peace is over. Life is not about living in perfect peace, but it is full of trials and difficulties and struggles, as well as happiness and joy. For some people, last night was happiness, right? The A's won. For some, it was a trial, all right? And some people go, grrr, if that's happening, okay? Now, Psalm 23 um, is just the most beautiful text that we can go to on the subject of shepherding. And it's really important for us then just to pause and to see what it is saying in and of itself, okay? What I love about Psalm 23 is that it shows us the joys of the Christian life as well as the hardships. There's an honesty about it. In fact, there's an honesty in the Psalms. But you see that the heart of man in his rawest sense just crying out to God in times of despair, even questioning God, and God has allowed us to enter into that world through the Psalms. It also shows us the problems of life as well as the promises that God gives in the context of the prom uh, those problems of life. That with the dark valleys that there will be joys of sunshiny mountains. That with the presence of enemies there is also the comfort of faithful and loyal friends. So escaping isn't necessarily always wrong. Jesus at times would, and you can call it escaping, but he would retreat, right? And he would go and he would spend time in prayer. And sometimes we retreat in a variety of different ways. Sometimes you retreat by going on a walk. Sometimes you retreat by jumping into a book or sometimes even watching a movie or something like that. There's a, there's a time and a place 
for retreating and for escaping, but this is not some kind of escapist psalm. Psalm 23 is given to us as Christian believers, not so that we can escape the real world, but so that we can live in it. Okay? It is there to help us live, not to escape, and not to kind of live in this kind of warm, fuzzy feeling world, but to to face the realities of life. And if we want to live in this world, we will need all the help that we can get. So let's approach Psalm 23 with fresh vigor and seek how it speaks about, about the character and the ministry of the chief shepherd who is our ultimate example, and to whom we're all accountable. So, now the question is, what is a shepherd? What is a shepherd? Um, In many countries around the world, in many cultures, um, animals just kind of wander freely as scavengers. This past summer, I went to Bolivia with a number of people from our church. And one of the things about the Bolivian context is animals are just walking all over the place. I mean, you're going to church in the morning, and you have to stop and wait for this herd of cattle to kind of move out of the way. And I remember going up to them, they wouldn't move. And Matthias, who was our driver, was beeping the horn, beeping the horn, and they wouldn't move. And then when we went on a journey from Santa Cruz to Samaipata, which was a few hours, you know, we ran into certain animals along the way. But there's just animals walking on. They just run feely all over the place. But in other countries, animals are more domesticated. And in the context of Palestine, sheep actually were shepherded in specific ways, not in the Bolivian culture, completely different. Okay? So we must, we must understand then shepherding, not from the perspective of what we think it is, but from the perspective of what was it in that particular context. I remember 2006 going to Israel, and we were driving off one of these country roads, and off to the side was, believe it or not, a shepherd with a bunch of sheep. I thought, well, isn't that something? Now, I don't think he had a cell phone. Um, he, ha- he had kind of like traditional garb on and the sheep, and he was just sitting there, you know, I think he was smoking or something like that, watching the sheep, but they were there, and the pastures were green. It's just like it was really, really kind of weird that that's actually still going on. Well, it has to still go on because why? You still got to care for the sheep in that context, right? Now, we here in the States, what do we do? We stick all the sheep in some kind of container and feed them, you know, some kind of processed food and all that kind of stuff, right? It's a completely different world. You go to England, you still see a lot of sheep running around in, in packs and, and uh, being herded and shepherded by uh, a farmer. But a shepherd cares for the sheep. How? By leading them to graze where the grass is green, by guiding them to where the water is fresh, by protecting them from would-be attackers. And it was a 24-7 job. In fact, many times um, the shepherd... Um, was considered the low, lowest job, and so you had the youngest children, or sometimes the, those that were a little bit more, a uh, little slower in their co- you know, mental capacities that had the responsibility of watching those sheep because it was considered to be a lowly thing. That isn't always the true in every culture, but some cultures that was the case. So the question before us then should be this. What is meant by the term shepherd in the Old Testament? And I would like to say, first of all, that shepherd in the Old Testament Excuse me, I'm, I'm, I need to catch up here to make sure I know what I'm talking about. There you go. All right. We are. I didn't realize that was up there. Okay. There you go. First of all, describes God's relationship with his children. And I'm just going to read three passages of Scripture. You can just listen as I read them. But here's God describing his people. 
Psalm 28, 9. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry uh, them forever. This is a picture of God caring for and carrying his children. Psalm 77, verse 20. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Talking about the Exodus there. God is the one who led them by the hand of Moses and Aaron, like a flock. And then Psalm 78, then he led them out, then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock, Psalm 78, verse 52. Again, there's other places we could go, but the idea here is that God is the ultimate shepherd of his children, okay? So there's that kind of analogy that's put there. The shepherds also are used to describe those who have been given the responsibility to be leaders of his children. In the context we just read there, the Exodus, Moses would be considered a shepherd of the people because he is taking on the responsibility of leading them. Obviously, he was doing it God's way, but he was been given that responsibility to lead. And to, to see more of that, um, we want to turn to Ezekiel chapter 34. But here's the problem. Not all the leaders of Israel actually were very responsible in their shepherding. Ezekiel chapter 34, and we'll begin at verse 1. Ezekiel chapter 34, we'll begin at verse 1. I want to encourage you to turn there because we're going to read through this passage uh, quite a bit. And this is actually really important. We're going to get to Psalm 23, trust me, okay? We're going to get there, but we're laying a foundation to understand how is this used and why is Psalm 23 then such a powerful text of Scripture, right? Ezekiel chapter 34. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. This is God speaking through a prophet, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the, the, the mountains, and on every high hill my sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. I mean, God cares about his sheep. And he's rebuking the shepherds here for neglecting their responsibility. But it's not just the neglect of their responsibility. We're told they were selfish. They were just thinking about themselves. Verse 7 now. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. We always want to be careful if God identifies us in that sentence. Fortunately, that's not us. It's the shepherds, right? As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherd, uh, shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. So just think about this. 
the shepherds turned against the sheep. And God is having to come to rescue the sheep from the shepherds. Now verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock and uh, when he is among his sheep that, uh, that have been scattered. So will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness, and I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in the inhabited places in the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel I shall be their, shall be their grazing land. There sh they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pastures they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and myself, I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat of the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Now, this is, this is a powerful text of Scripture because God is rescuing his sheep from oppressive shepherds, from shepherds that are only concerned about themselves. And so this is a huge rebuke, but it's also a wonderful display of God's love and continuing love for his sheep, his people. And isn't it interesting that a lot of the things that were said here in Ezekiel 34 are the same things that are talked about in Psalm 23. So the leaders had failed. God steps in. He removes the unfaithful shepherds. He returns himself as their shepherd, and he restores his sheep. He is the chief shepherd. He is the good shepherd. He is the ultimate shepherd who knows his sheep. And that brings us now to Psalm 23. And two images pop out at us in Psalm 23. Now some think that the, the whole image of the shepherd runs through the whole psalm. I think there's actually two different images that are being used here. The first one is uh, the Lord as shepherd. And the second one is the Lord as host. Now, what does a shepherd and what does a host have in common? What do they have in common? A shepherd is responsible for the sheep that are under his care. In the culture of Israel, of the, when, in the day when this was written, the responsibility of the host was to care, to protect, to refresh, to nourish the guests, under his roof. Now we have lost the concept of what it means to be a host because in today's culture, if you want to go somewhere and you want to stay somewhere, where do you typically go? You usually stay, stay in a hotel unless you have family, right? But in this kind of context, you know, you didn't, you didn't you know, walk into you know, Bethlehem and find some kind of a place to stay. Well, you know, Jesus tried that. Well, I should say Joseph and Mary tried that. There was an inn. But those were not the best places to stay at all. This practice of being a host, of welcoming people into your home, was an ancient practice. In fact, if you did not welcome those people, and if you did not provide for them, it was considered to be an insult. And that's why even sometimes in, in that culture, you know, while you're under my roof, you're protected. But once you leave, <laughs> you know, there's that kind of a context going on too. A host 
was responsible for his guests. So with that kind of mindset, let us now jump into Psalm 23 and recognize what is being talked about here. The Lord as shepherd, first of all. The Lord as shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not want. Not I shall not have desire. This is not talking about my wants in the sense that we you know, write a list, what do I want for Christmas? The psalmist is not saying all of my wants that will be satisfied in Jesus. It's not talking about that. Rather, it's saying I will not be lacking. I will not have need. I will not be without. And that's a huge distinction. Because just a simple reading of this, say, oh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. See, all the things I want, my shepherd is going to provide for me. That's not what it's talking about. What it's talking about, though, is those things that are your, your basic needs, the things that you need to survive, the things that you need to live. The shepherd knows those things, and he will make sure that you are not lacking in those things. So we can say it this way. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall lack nothing that I really need. Of course, this removes any possibility of our God being a genie, that we somehow rub to do what we want them to do, right? And some people view God that way, you know? And the only time they go to God is when they're going through trial, right? Oh, I'll go quickly, let me find my Bible, and let me rub my Bible by praying some prayers and going to the, God, I need your help now, quickly, 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 you know, boom, do this for me. Woo, okay, he did it for me. God is not a genie. Um, a genie is nothing compared to him. That is not how man is to relate to him. It also removes this whole idea of, of the possibility coming out of this particular passage of a, of, a, of a premise of a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that said God always wants me to experience good. God always wants me to be wealthy. God always wants me to be healthy. Now, if we compare Scripture with Scripture and the tone of the rest of the Word of God, we find that there are times when God wants you to go through trial. There are times when suffering is all part of the makeup of what he has called you to. And he desires to be glorified in it. So this is not kind of a, a text that tells us that, you know what, God's going to provide all of your wants. That's not it. <clears throat> this passage is talking about us. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Recognize that. But this, this psalm is also about him. The Lord is my shepherd. All right? And it's because of him all these things are taking place. So things I don't deserve, things that are comforting for me in life, things that are assuring me as I face death, these are all wonderful realities that God has given me. So as my shepherd, we have to recognize some things. Because the Lord is my shepherd, here's the first thing. I will not lack rest. Let's just think about this. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. These two lines in, in the poetry of this psalm are parallel. And what that means is there aren't two separate things being talked about, although there are two different images being used. They're trying to present the same emphasis, okay? So there's really one reality going on here. It isn't that God is forcing you outside of your own will to lie down. God is not coming and dragging and says, I'm going to make you lie down, right? You know, that's not the idea. The idea is, he is he's pushing us, he's leading us, he's guiding us, he's taking us. Okay. 
So the, the act here of shepherding requires a guiding and leading into places where you can be satisfied and ultimately rest. In other words, the shepherd um, knows where the rich fields are and the meadows of green pasture are located and where the fresh water flows gently so that uh, sheep can drink from it. This is not a stagnant pool. This is like a slow-flowing water, so it's fresh, but it's, it's available for sheep to be able to drink. Okay? So he takes the sheep into those places, guiding them and leading them so that they can be fully satisfied and refreshed. And so rest isn't simply getting more sleep. Rest is about receiving the basics of food and water so you can sleep. It's all part and parcel. In fact, you might even think about the story of Elijah. Remember Elijah was really, really discouraged and he ran away after he had this battle with all these, uh, all these, these priests of Baal and they ultimately get killed and he runs away from Jezebel into the mountain. And what does God do? He gives him a whole bunch of time, provides food, provides water, provides rest. That's what he needed. And there are times, guys, when we simply need the basics of life. We need to be fed. We need the water. We need to be sustained. Okay? And so God will provide rest. As our shepherd, we have the confidence that we will not lack rest. Now, rest is a theme in the Word of God. There's a spiritual dynamic to this. This is not necessarily saying that you'll always have a certain kind of food on your plate. This is talking about a food and a sustenance that comes from the shepherd, that chief shepherd who is God. And so that comes in the form of... Of, of calmness and satisfaction because we have been feeding on the things that he has given us. And, of course, that feeding comes from his word. Listen to his truth. Secondly, uh, because the Lord is my shepherd, I will not lack life. Now, what do you mean life? I mean, is that just, you know, I'm, I'm not living and I'm living? Well, let's just think about the, the word life in the context of vitality and vigor and strength, okay? He restores my soul. Literally, this line is, he causes my nephesh to return. Just wanted to tell you that because it sounds cool, okay? But nephesh is to talk about this, this, this life, my soul being strengthened, my inner man being strengthened. In Scripture, uh, the Bible talks about the, the physical body and the inner, inner man. A lot of words used to describe it, the heart, the, the soul, um, the, the mind would be the cognitive side of that, the spirit. All these are interchangeably used to describe that part. And God comes and he, he gives life. He, he brings uh, uh, renewal and invigoration into that inner man. There are times when, when you are discouraged with what is going on in life, when you're struggling with, you know, what is God doing and how is he going about it or there's a particular problem facing you. And, and he comes and he restores your soul. He reinvigorates you so that you can pursue what he's called you to. And so this seems to be the result of what has just taken place by leading us into green pastures and cool, fresh waters. Psalm 42, verse 11, has a wonderful word picture. The psalmist says there, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And it's the expression here, why are you cast down, O my soul? And you say, well, what does that have to do with anything we're talking about here? Because the expression cast down actually comes to us as sheep language. The picture here of cast down is a sheep that has kind of found its, its way to, 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 to rest in a ravine. And as a result of that ravine, 
it has turned over, and when sheep turn completely over, they cannot turn themselves back. And so they're laying on their backs, and they're waving their little legs like this, and they can do nothing, and they are totally dependent on the shepherd to come and to rescue them, because if he doesn't, they will die. Now, that just boggles your mind, doesn't it? So just think about it. We were just a bunch of sheep going like this, bah, 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 to God, you know, and it's God that comes, and he ministers to us as a shepherd. So why are you cast down, O oh my soul? <laughs> What's the antidote here? Hope in God. Philip Keller, who's written a lot on this subject, says this, a heavy, fat, or long-faced, uh, long-fleeced sheep will lie down comfortably in some little hollow or depression in the ground. It may roll on its side slightly to stretch out or relax. Suddenly, the center of gravity of the body shifts so that it turns on its back far enough that the feet no longer touch the ground. It may feel a sense of panic and start to paw frantically. Frequently, this only makes things worse. It rolls over even further, and now it's quite impossible for it to regain its feet. And friends, it's just an incredible picture that God gives us here as to what is it that he's doing in coming to us and restoring our soul? He is, he is he's setting us up in a right way. He is giving us strength to live again. He is giving us the ability to, to get our legs moving, but with earth underneath us so that we can do what we need to do. So we're, we're like these cast-down sheep, and he seeks us out, and he picks us up, and he restores us back. Now, he did that with Peter. Remember as we, as we studied through John's Gospel? What did Peter do? Peter denied his Christ three times. And then at the end of John's gospel, we have this wonderful, this wonderful gathering around a fire where God asks him three questions. And those three questions, you know, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? You know, I feed my sheep. You know, do you love me? All right, tend to my lambs. This is all, isn't it weird, incredible how all this, this language, this sheep language, all is tied together. And here is Peter around the fire with the other disciples by Jesus being restored back into leadership. After he has denied him three times, he affirms him three times. He restores him. And friends, he does that with us. He restores us and he wants to restore us. And that's what a shepherd does for his sheep. The third one here is this. We will not lack guidance. We will not lack guidance. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The shepherd who cares for his flock leads his sheep in paths where they can avoid danger and which will lead to abundant pastures. The shepherd knows where he's going. The shepherd knows where those pastures are. He knows where that cool water is. But he is he's guiding these sheep to places of tranquility and to graze in safety. And he does that, he says here, for his name's sake. In other words, he does that um, because that is what he is known for. Or maybe put it a little differently, his name here is a statement about his reputation and character. God as our shepherd is known for guiding us along the path that is pursuing righteousness that reflects his character as a shepherd. So we could say it this way. He leads me along paths of righteousness because he is that kind of Lord. See, 
God is not the kind of Lord that wants to lead you down a pass and throw you into a ditch and go, ah, ha, 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 ha. That's not what he's like. What kind of shepherd would do that with his sheep? What kind of shepherd would not really care for his sheep that much and not worry, ah, oh, some wolves back there, yeah, hurry up. Well, we might lose one along the way, that's fine. We'll still be able to eat tonight. What kind of shepherd would be like that? See, God is not like that at all. He cares for his sheep, and so he guides his sheep very, very carefully. Another way to put it is this, because that is what he is known for. It is his very reputation that stands behind his guiding hand. God guides us, and he does it in such a way that reflects the goodness of his character. So as our shepherd, he has given us his word to guide us. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And with that path imagery, we can understand what Paul was saying to Timothy here. We're like sheep, and we're just being led step by step into a place where he wants us then to feed and to be satisfying our thirst. And then all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16, very key passage here. And you know, why bring this up here? Because he is leading us down the paths of righteousness. Well, this, this image we have in 2 Timothy 3.16 is of a path, so to speak. This teaching that is going on, here's where I want you to walk. Here's the path, and here's what it looks like. And so walk on it. That's the idea of teaching. But then you come up with this word reproof. What is reproof talking about? It's talking about the fact that you didn't walk down the path like I told you to. You went off. You're off. And it's basically saying, you know, you're off the path. Some people don't even know they're off the path. All right? And so there's, there's a reproof that is necessary. We don't like the word reproof, do we? We wake up this morning and say, you know, I've got to go reproof someone. Yay, yay. Put my reproof jacket on and my reproof hat and... And then they come knocking on your door and say, ah, oh, the reproof crowd are here, right? I mean, we don't like the word reproof, but it is the right word. And actually, it's a kind word when it is done in a Christ-like way, in a God-fearing way, in a shepherding way. What is it doing? It is coming to that sheep that has wandered off the path, and it's saying, I love you. I care about you. Do you even know that you're off the path? Let me point you back to the path. And correction is helping that sheep then get back on that path once again. And the last one we have there in 2 Timothy 3.16 is this, in training in righteousness. This is actually how you walk on the path and how you stay on it. That's life, guys. Constantly, this is what it's about. I walk off the path. I need to be brought back on the path. I need to learn how to walk on it effectively. And then in other areas, it's just constantly going on in our lives. And this is what the Word of God has been given to us for. So if we're to walk on the path that God is guiding us into, we can be sure <clears throat> that it is he that is at work in us and through us to accomplish his purposes. And that's why we say, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will what? Make your paths straight or depending on what translation you'll have, direct your paths. This whole idea of walking down a path in the image here of a sheep being led by a shepherd. It's a wonderful image. God loves to guide us, and he does guide us, and he backs up his guidance with his own character. And here's the last one. I will not lack safety. I will not lack safety. See the last one as far as the shepherd analogy is concerned. 
It is in this verse that the writer of this psalm turns from the third person, the Lord is, to the second person, you are, you are with me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now this verse is often turned to in times of sorrow, to comfort, um, in particular to comfort those who are dying, and it's not wrongly used in that way, uh, but the verse primarily speaks of the shepherd's ability to protect his sheep in moments of danger. That's the idea here. The picture is of, of danger. The idea of a valley means to be in the middle of something, okay? And valleys were the places where, let's think about this, the rich meadows are, where the cool waters are flowing, but even with the good of the rich meadows and the cool water, there is always the possibility of danger. Danger from wolves, other animals like that that want to come and, and um, tear up the sheep. It can be danger from things like floods. And it can also be just danger that's lurking in the shadows. And so we've got to be careful how we approach the, the language of, of what's being talked about here. Okay, This is the shadow of death we're talking about here, the shadow of darkness. So it's important that we understand that the valley of the shadow of death is not a place that we are to avoid. He's not saying, I am going to lead you out of it. Is that what it says? He says, I'm going to be with you in it. That's a really important distinction. here. In fact, it is the setting where the paths of righteousness are found. Right? In this valley of the shadow of death. Is the, it's not saying, well, you're walking on the wrong road. No, you're walking on the right road. It's just that when you're walking on this path that God has for you to the place he wants you to go so you can feed, there is danger. But he promises to what? Be with you. And to not fear. And the evil there, I mean, don't, you know, don't think about you know, demons with red eyes and big claws. And this is just bad things, all right? That's how that word is used here, just kind of trouble, difficulty, bad things that might, that might be there that you'll encounter. This is, a, this is a healthy picture, friends, of the Christian life. It is honest about the fact that we need to listen and to be guided by our shepherd. It also is honest about the fact that the Christian life does not remove dark shadows and turbulent times, um, and suffering, and trials. But those are times when the workroom of our growth and sanctification is actually taking place. And during those times, God is with us. And I think if we were just to pause right now and to go around the room and just ask people, listen, what trial have you gone through? And those that know the Lord as their Savior would say, you know, this is the trial I went through, but I know the Lord was with me because of this, 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 this. Here's how he did it. Here's how he sustained me. On the front end of it, I thought, man, how am I going to get through? Having gone through it, I look back and say, this is amazing. This is incredible. I can't believe that he took me through this. Because he promises that he will be with us. And so again, the, the psalmist is, is honest about the nature of sheep in the dark valley. What do we do? We fear. Anyone here ever been afraid? Yeah, I've been afraid. It's okay to be afraid. 
It's a reality of life. That's what I love about the Psalms. They're raw. This is what we do. This is how we respond. And their fear was real. Wild beasts, shadows that are there. I can't see what's going on. And possibly with the sheep in particular, when they are afraid, they tend to freeze and stop. Okay? And we need to be careful that that's not what happens with us. That we fight against this unbelief of fear and we hold on to the reality that we have God as our shepherd. And so we need this shepherd to guide us and to encourage us and to lead us and to protect us with his presence. And when we are mindful of his presence, we are then assured of our safety and our security and we have no need to fear the evil. Now, I just want to just caution us a little bit here. We've got to be careful as we go through this, this passage here that we, we, you know, we, we move from the, the physical analogy to the spiritual side of this. This is not saying that if you are in trouble, for example, if you know, the doctor diagnoses you with maybe cancer and you're going to have to go through surgery, that you say, ah, oh, I'm going to claim this verse and I'm not going to have to experience any suffering or pain. It's not what it's talking about. But it's saying as you go through that trial, this is the path that God has for you. He will be very present with you. And friends, we need that comfort. We need that assurance. Now it says your rod and your staff will comfort me. In our church, that's a problem because I may not always be there to comfort you. And I have a very small staff right now, okay? All right? I'll do my best. That's why we want to establish an eldership, because I can't do it all, right? But your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What's this picture here? Well, the rod was an instrument that was used like a club to drive away animals that were preying on the sheep. The staff was a, a long stick used for supporting, and, and actually, ultimately, it kind of developed into this shepherd's crook. You probably have seen it before. There's kind of a hook on one end and more of like a club on the other end. It had two functions, keep animals away, and the other one was to kind of hook in the sheep as they would wander and go astray. And if they were in a ravine, the shepherd could kind of reach down with his, his crook and he could hook the sheep, sheep up and bring it back to him. Okay, So this wonderful picture then of how God actually protects and cares and keeps us safe using his rod and staff. They comfort me. And so God comes alongside us and he, 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 with his presence, uses the rod and staff to accomplish his purposes. That's just a wonderful picture there of the Lord as our shepherd, providing rest, life, guidance, and safety. Now let's transition this analogy to hosts. That's verses 5 and 6. John Stott writes, the scene changes. I'm no longer out of doors, but indoors. No longer a sheep in a flock, but a guest at a banquet. And just like the image of the shepherd and the sheep describes ongoing life with the reality of death, so the image of the host and guest uh, is a description that takes us to a banquet and ultimately to a home we can call our own. So there's this progress going on. There's movement in each analogy here to, you know, be this life and then this, this kind of this moving into this experience and reality of, of, of death. So we're going to look now in a number of ways, three ways, uh, three things that kind of flesh out about the fact that the Lord is our host. First of all, if the Lord is our host then I will not lack protection. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So, so since God is the host, we who are the guests under his roof, in a sense, are under his protection and care, and our enemies pose no threat. 
Now, it's possible that what's pictured here is a victory celebration. It's possible. But what's certainly going on here is that there is a gathering of people around the table, and the host is there, and he is serving everyone around the table, and the enemies pose no threat. Now, the interesting thing about the victory celebration is that oftentimes enemies then that were captured, depending on the culture, would actually sit at the table or sit in the banquet room, and they would be shamed during that time because they have lost. So there's that kind of idea too. But I think it's more just the idea of is as, you are, as you are welcomed into this home, your enemies are not going to do anything against you because you are protected by that host. And we here have a very strong host, a very powerful host. Now, they may sit opposite us, they may sit around us, they may snarl at us, they might threaten us, they might seek to put fear into us, but they cannot move against us because we are under the protection of the host. That's the idea here. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Secondly, I will not lack refreshment. I will not lack refreshment. Notice what happens. Again, this is host language. This is what a host is required to do in that culture. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. And so the practice of welcoming a pilgrim on a journey into a home was the provision of food, wine and oil for their refreshment. Let me just kind of walk through that again. Food to refresh the hungering stomach. After a long day's journey, don't you want to eat? Right? wine to refresh the weary and aching body. And then the last one here is this, oil to clean and refresh the face and head. A number of years ago, um, when, when I was traveling to Russia to do some, some teaching, I had a, uh, someone that was traveling with me. We were moving, flying from Detroit to JFK in New York, and that flight was you know, reasonable. We had a little lay, considerable actually layover in JFK, but the place was packed with people. Of course, this is always packed with people at JFK if you've ever been there. And we had an international flight from there to Moscow. And one of the things that happened, uh, which is always a joy to a traveler, is that no one had assigned any seats for the second flight. So you know what that means. That means that when you get to that, that transition airport, JFK, you can't just sit around and have your gate, you know, your boarding pass with you. You actually have to go to the gate and you have to stand in line. Now, this is an international flight. You know, 300 plus people that are getting on this flight that don't have their boarding passes. So where is everyone? They're all in line waiting to get their boarding passes. And it's hot and it's sticky. And people are grumbling and they're complaining. Okay, and we're going to Russia. And forgive me if you know Russian people. Um, Anyway, we'll stop there. Um, love Russian people. There's just some character things that are there. It's interesting, all right? But we go through this line, and we're waiting, and just we're seeing people get their stuff. And in front of us, literally, I mean, one, one group in front of us, this argument starts happening between, you know, a, a, someone who is flying and the lady behind the ticket counter. And, I mean, they're yelling back and forth. And so we're standing there, and um, I hear, you know, will you come up here? I say, yes. And they say, Mr. Phillips? Um, are you and your traveling companion okay with uh, moving up to first class for the flight from JFK to Moscow? Well, we had to confer a little bit and talk about the possibility and weren't sure, you know, what our wives would think. And yeah, of course, all right? And so here we 
wow, how did that happen? We're in first class. And so we get into first class, and literally, I mean, they're still loading, you know, the plane with people, and they're walking by, and we're sitting there like, yeah, you know, we're first class, you know. Um, you know, and then, and then they come out. They come out with this hot, scented towel. And I'm just like, what am I supposed to do with this? And they, oh, this is for you to clean. Oh, okay, you know. Tells you how much I fly first class, right? It's just like, what am I supposed to do? And I, I just remember putting it on my face. Now, we've been, we've been on this journey, and where I live, like two hours away from the airport in Detroit, and so then you have the waiting at the airport, then you have the flight, then you have the train. I mean, I was just, it was so wonderful to put this hot, scented towel on my, my face and my head and my arms. It just, oh, it felt so good. And I felt refreshed. You know, and then we enjoyed first class. And then when we, we were about 30 minutes outside of, of Moscow, they came by again. I was like, man, can I just get this every day, <laughs> you know? And we did it again. It was so wonderful. And I, I think there's something like that that's going on here with someone who is a guest entering into a home. This anointing a, a head with oil is kind of a foreign concept for us, right? But there's this wonderful refreshment that takes place after a long journey, and there's dirt, and there's grime, and you're, you're able to kind of refresh yourself. That's the picture here of what's going on. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. I am fully refreshed. I'm fully satisfied by all that you are giving me here as I've entered into this home. And Psalm 104, verse 15, kind of summarizes it for us. Psalm 104, verse 15 says this, And wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Just a, a picture here of, of how these three things work together to kind of refresh someone from a journey. And that's part of the responsibility of the host. And then... We will not lack a home. We just need to think through this a little bit. Surely, goodness and mercy. I used to think that was Shirley, as in the name Shirley, goodness and mercy, because my sister's name was Shirley, and I was trying to figure out who goodness and mercy were after that, but that's a whole other story. But surely, goodness and mercy, these wonderful characteristics that God uh, provides for us, they're like guardians of our soul. The word surely here means certainly. Certainly, goodness and mercy shall follow me. And the idea of follow there is not that they're kind of like behind saying, you know, slow down, I'm trying to catch up, all right? It's not that kind of, it means that they're actually going with me along the journey. So goodness and mercy are coming along. That's God's goodness, whereby he seeks the well-being of his children. God truly cares about you. And if you ever feel that God is doing something to you because he doesn't like you, you've misunderstood the character of God. God is good. And his goodness comes with us wherever we go. He is also merciful. And mercy is, is, is that act of God whereby he withholds consequences, chastisement, or discipline that we actually deserve. God is a merciful God because he withholds the full brunt of punishment that we deserve. And so isn't it interesting that, that we often turn to God and ask, God, why did you allow that suffering, trial, or turbulence to happen to me? But we don't often say this, God, why did you withhold the natural consequence of my sin? Or, God, why did you withhold um, your, 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 you know, your wrath on my life after the sins that I committed and continue to commit? That's because he's merciful. We don't often, you know, we don't often focus on that, but God's mercy is a beautiful, wonderful reality. And these two attributes of God go hand in hand 
come along with us on this journey, okay? Now, we're told here that they will take us on this journey. Here we go. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. So there's this expanse. It's not just a period. It's all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. To David, who's writing the psalm, what is the house of the Lord? temple. It's the place of worship. He's saying, I long to be in the house of the Lord. I long to be worshiping you all the days of my life. But it also has some kind of a future look to it. And for us then, we say, as we look at this reality that I'll not lack a home, I must be mindful of the fact that God has given me a temporary place called the church that is really a gathering of temples. See, what do you mean by that? We, Scripture says, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're all temples. We're all walking temples. The Holy Spirit lives in us. When we come together as a church, we are bringing all of our little temples together to worship God. This is the corporate gathering of people worshiping God. But what is it that we long for? What is the worship that we are hungering for? Ultimately, it is that worship when in heaven we stand before him around the throne and with the throngs of the church through the ages praise his name together. And at that point in time, we will recognize that we are finally home. And that, friends, is where we're headed here. And this is one of the beautiful realities of this psalm. Now, we want to jump just quickly to the back page of your hand up there. I want you to notice the Lord as Messiah. And I'm just going to jump through that. Here are some connections. This, this psalm is just pointing to John chapter 10 and other passages where Jesus uses this analogy. And I just want you to think through what we're told here about this good shepherd who is Jesus. He determines what sheep enter into the fold. He takes his sheep out into the good pastures. He guards his flock from the wolves. This is all stuff that's being pulled from John 10 that we read right at the beginning of our passage, or our, our time together. When he speaks, his sheep know his voice, and they follow. Isn't that awesome? The sheep know his voice. But what's even more awesome than that is the next one. When he hears the voice of his sheep, he knows them by name. You moms know what that's like. We don't have that context here, but we were in a church in, in Michigan where the nursery was down the hall from the auditorium, and moms who had little ones would sit toward the back. And you could hear, I mean, there's tons of babies in the nursery, but those moms could tell which baby was theirs when it was crying. And God, in the same way, he knows our voices, and he knows our name. He is also the chief pastor shepherd of the universal church across through the ages and in the entire world. So as our shepherd, he feeds us, he refreshes us, he guards us, he guides us. As our host, he protects us, he refreshes us, um, he guides us home. And friends, all of these realities are helping us then understand what an elder should be. We are not God, we are not Christ, but we have responsibilities that reflect some of the shepherding responsibilities or shepherding realities of who God is and who Christ is that are reflected for us in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and then are then commanded to us as we look to the responsibilities of those who are serving God as under shepherds in the church. Okay, That's where we're headed with this. So to, to identify what an elder is, we need to know who Jesus is as the 
good shepherd. You understand that? Now, here are a couple of things to think about as we close. Number one, um, God's promises are not a matter of feelings, but of fact. You say, well, what are you talking about there? Um, when that valley is dark, when, it, when you are experiencing fear, when your feelings are full-blown and you're panicked and you're wondering where the enemies are, your feelings don't determine who God is. God's promises are true regardless how you feel about it. If God says, I am there, I'm with you. If God says, I'm looking out for you. If God says, I'm leading you. You can be sure that God is doing what? He's being faithful to his promises. You may not feel like he is. In fact, you might feel distant. You might feel alone. You might feel like he's abandoned you. But he tells us that he doesn't do that. And so what we need to do is make sure that our feelings don't, don't kind of overrule what is true. Okay? Now, friends, life's trials and struggles will conjure up all sorts of feelings, will they not? And what we need in the context of those life's trials and struggles is the certainty of God's truth and the comfort of that truth to carry us through. Okay? That's the first thing. The second thing is this. God is wholly committed to his sheep from start to finish. I just think about this. God doesn't abandon the sheep. He doesn't say, okay, uh, I think I'll go off for a break. Time for a break. I need a coffee break right now. I'll be back in about an hour. Time for lunch. I need some me time, you know, whatever it might be. No, he is constantly, constantly with us as shepherd, and he never stops being our shepherd. So he's, he's wholly committed to his sheep from start to finish, 24-7. And it reminds me of what Paul, I think, recognized as he was penning this Psalm, sorry, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, something we all know very well. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He is always at work and with us to accomplish his purpose through us as our shepherd, as our God. Now, friends, that should be a great comfort to us as we reflect on the fact that he is that wonderful shepherd. Lord, help us today. We have taken time to kind of broad stroke an understanding of what this idea of a shepherd is, Lord, through the Bible, and in particular in Psalm 23, so that, Lord, we can have a better understanding of how we can know you, how we can interact with you, but, Lord, also how we can see that shepherding dynamic fleshed out in the context of church so that your sheep can be cared for in a way, Lord, that will reflect who you are. And, uh, Lord, you desire to do that through imperfect men, but, Lord, at the same time, they are men who are called with a responsibility to care for the flock. And, Lord, as a church, may we see the beauty of that and at the same time the weight of that. May we also reflect on the fact that it is ultimately you who are shepherding your sheep through those under-shepherds. And, uh, Lord, ultimately, it's not the under-shepherds or the elders that we want to focus on and that we want to see. We want to see you behind them as the great God and Savior that you are. And so, Lord, help us today as we meditate on Psalm 23 and as we consider, Lord, this wonderful image of shepherding to, to find ourselves resting in the promises of this passage and to find ourselves resting in your character, Lord, revealed in this text. And, 
Lord, to trust you and to hold on to you and to be thankful for you. We ask this in your name. Amen. Now, friends,